Well, we want to continue our study in the book of Revelation. We're on chapter 10 this morning, A Mighty Angel and the Little Book. Chapter 10 begins by saying, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow upon his head. His face was, as it were, the sun and his feet as pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book open. The mighty angel and the little book. It's helpful for us to keep in mind the flow of the book of Revelation as we've been going through it the last several months. And back in the sixth chapter, we had the beginning of the great tribulation time period on earth that's known as the great tribulation. And the Bible teaches us that the next event in God's timetable, as far as prophecy is concerned, is the rapture of the church. That could take place at any time. The Lord could come back today. We're looking for it. We're listening for the trumpet. When he comes back, that will begin the period of the great tribulation, a seven-year period of tribulation here on this earth. But thank God those of us who are saved, who are born again, who are a child of God, will be out of here. We won't have to go through that tribulation time here on this earth. The great tribulations given to us beginning in chapter 6 all the way over into chapter 19 of Revelation. It is presented to us in a rather unique and unusual way. It is presented, first of all, by seven seals, and then we have seven trumpets, which is where we are. We've been looking at the trumpets. And then third, there are seven bowls or vials of wrath that God pours out upon this earth. The unfolding, in the unfolding of this series of sevens, we have here in God's Word, He tells us about the events that are going to transpire during the tribulation period. We've been studying the trumpet judgments the last couple of weeks, and the various angels have sounded their trumpets, and judgment has come. We saw the first four, and they had to do with natural disasters that took place here on this earth. And last Sunday we looked at the fifth and sixth trumpet that had to do with the supernatural disaster on earth as we saw the invasion of demons pouring out of the bottomless pit upon the earth. And now we come to the tenth chapter, and the sixth trumpet sounded back in the ninth chapter and verse 13, and you would expect when you come to chapter 10 that you'll get to the seventh trumpet that would take place, but that's not what we find in chapter number 10. The seventh trumpet doesn't sound until all the way into chapter number 11 and verse 15. There it says, and the seventh angel sounded. So we have here in chapter 10 another one of these interludes that takes place in the book of Revelation. A parenthesis, you might say, that is given between the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Of course, sometimes those parentheses kind of heighten our sense of anticipation and, and our interest as we think of the next trumpet that's going to take place. But I think here there is a picture as this parenthesis is given to us. It is a picture of the comfort that God always gives. When there is great tribulation, when there's great trouble and trials, God often gives in the midst of those trumpets or in the midst of those judgments and trials, He gives us His comfort and His grace and His strength. We could be easily overwhelmed with what we read about in the first six trumpets and then when you get into the seventh, but God gives us a little time to rest before He tells about that seventh trumpet. He gives us a little time of reprieve or a little time of of relief. 
It's to comfort God's children. It's also to encourage God's people. When you read about these judgments and these demons that are pouring out, as we saw last week in, in the sixth trumpet, we get the idea, if we aren't careful, that the devil is in charge. But I want to remind you that God is still in charge. And he's in control in chapter 9, he's in control in chapter 10, he's in control in chapter 11. You'll never discover that God is not in control. He is still the sovereign of all the universe. He's working out his own plan in his own time. God's moving things according to his divine decree. Like the sun shining through in the middle of a terrible storm here in chapter 10, we have a little bit of relief and hope that comes in the midst of the storm. It's one of those chapters in Revelation that God gives us from time to time that causes us to turn our eyes away from the storm and turn our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God is doing here, and that's what John is doing here. He's getting us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And chapter 10 actually is divided into two sections. First, we turn our eyes upon Jesus, and then in the last part of the chapter, we turn our eyes upon John. So let's look at the first part of the chapter, and that's probably all we'll get through this morning. We'll get to the second part tonight, the Lord willing. We turn our eyes, first of all, upon Jesus. In verse number 1, again he says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. So here we have um, another mighty angel. There's a difference of opinion among preachers and commentators about who this mighty angel is. I remind you that we are all unanimous on the thought that God's Word is the inspired Word of God. Amen? We believe this book is God's Word from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. We agree on the authority of God's Word. We agree on the accuracy of God's Word. But there are certain areas of Scripture where there are different interpretations and different opinions about certain things. In this matter of this angel, there are different opinions about who this angel is. There are some people that believe that this is a literal angel, a mighty angel. There are others that tend to believe that this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Angels are mentioned a great deal in the book of Revelation. I think it's some 60 times that angels are mentioned in Revelation. And these angels are God's special agents. In fact, they are God's messengers that He sends to carry out His message. God's agents are these angels. They are to administer His judgment, to carry out His purpose and His plans here on this earth. Verse 1 is, I believe, a reference not to an angel, but to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Now you may say, well, why would Jesus picture Himself as a mighty angel? One of the characteristics of the Great Tribulation is that God is dealing specifically with what nation? With Israel. He's dealing with the nation of Israel. And in Revelation chapter 7, we're told that there is a sealing of the twelve tribes of Israel. Many times, God dealt with His children of Israel in the Old Testament, and He did so by ministering to them through angels. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. In Genesis 48, in verse 16, it says, The angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let me ask you a question. Did a literal angel redeem us? No, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He redeemed us. In Acts chapter 27, verse 23, 
It says, For there stood with me this night the angel of God, notice this, whose I am and who I serve. Who's that talking about? That's Jesus. But he's called the angel of God. So Jesus was the angel in a number of different passages of Scripture. Jesus was the angel that redeemed Jacob in the Old Testament. Other angels do not have that power. Only Jesus Christ has the power to redeem us. So this angel, in verse 1, I believe, is a picture of the powerful Lord Jesus Christ coming and seen as a mighty angel. I do know that the key to understanding the book of Revelation is always Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation begins in chapter 1 and verse 1 by saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of the church, though the church is seen here in the book of Revelation. It is not a revelation just about the great tribulation, though the great tribulation is seen through, through the book of Revelation. If you get lost in the book of Revelation, just ask yourself this question, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And when you find Jesus, you'll get back on course again. All the problems and the troubles of this world stem from the fact that men have lost sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point in Revelation, men have ruled out Christ as a factor in the affairs of this world. They have lost Jesus. And the devil has provided them with a, with a more exciting Messiah. And I believe the world today is fast-headed in the same direction. Men are leaving the Lord out of their calculations, and the result is that little, if anything, makes sense in our world today. For centuries, men believed the theories of astronomy that taught were taught by the Greek philosophies and Greek philosophers. The writings of Aristotle and Ptolemy were scientific gospels, sort of like the pronouncements of Fauci in our day-to-day. -day. No extra charge for that. And to challenge their beliefs was the worst of heresies in those days. Men were expected to believe without debate that the earth was the center of the universe and that the heavenly bodies moved in perfect circles. Greek, or great theories were invented to explain some of the things that didn't fit into their theories that they had in that day, and some of the inconsistencies that were given. They had to try to figure all that out to make it fit into the astronomy of the Greeks. But astronomy was in a hopeless mess back in that time. Men simply did not have the, the things correct because they ignored the fact that the, the centra, of the centrality of the sun. Then there came two men, Nicholas Copernicus and Johann Kepler, and they put the sun back in its proper place in the center of the solar system. It was established that the earth and the planets re revolved around the sun, and that the true path of the planets was an ellipse and not a perfect circle. And when they got all that straightened out, then everything fell into place. Copernicus and his followers won lasting fame simply by giving the sun its rightful place. And so it is with the affairs of men today. The world has forgotten the centrality of the sun, the S-O-N, and that he is the center of everything. It's no wonder that our world is in such a mess. It's no wonder that we have all of the problems that we do today because our world has lost sight of the Lord Jesus Christ and has lost sight of the fact that everything revolves around Him 
and it's resulted in chaos everywhere in our world today. So John begins this chapter by drawing our attention back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Whenever you get in trouble in your life, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Amen? Get your eyes back on Him. First of all, notice He draws our attention to His character. He draws our attention to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 1, again He says, I saw another angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow upon His head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now this is no ordinary angel. No created being, and all the angels are created beings, none of them have powers and attributes like these that are seen in verse number 1. This is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John tells us about the dwelling place of the Lord Jesus. He tells us about where he is. He said, I saw another, a mighty angel, Notice this, come down from heaven. Jesus came down from heaven, amen? He is God who became man. He came down from heaven. The Bible tells us in John 3 and verse 13 that He came down from heaven over 2,000 years ago. He came and He stripped Himself of His outward insignia of His majesty and He took upon Himself the human form and He dwelt among men. But this world was not his home. He was from above. He was from heaven. Along the way, he seemed to get homesick for home from time to time. Many times he made reference to his heavenly home and he would talk about going back to heaven. He said in John 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. He talked about going back home. After his death and burial and resurrection, he did exactly that. He ascended back to heaven to the right hand of the Father where he sits today. He went back to his home. His dwelling place is in heaven. One of these days, he's coming back to earth. He's coming back here so he can take us with him to his home to dwell with the Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And what a day that will be. So he tells us about the dwelling place of the Lord. And then John gives us a description of the Lord Jesus. He gives us a, a description. It says he was clothed with a cloud. He's clothed with a cloud in verse number one. A cloud is always a picture of the attire of deity. It reminds us that Jesus is deity. That simply means he is God. Jesus was not a God. He is the God. He's the living God. In the Old Testament, we're told about the glory cloud that followed the children of Israel through the, through the, land, the wilderness land as they traveled. And they were guided throughout the, the, the difficult experiences that they have. And here we have another picture of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Himself is clothed with a cloud. One day, that glory tracked through the desert sands, following the children of Israel, leading and guiding them, and one day, our Lord Jesus Christ is going to come, the Bible says, in the clouds of glory, and He's coming back to take us home to be with Him. And then it tells us also in verse number 1 that there was a rainbow upon His head. Every time you see a rainbow, it reminds us of a divine covenant that God has made with us. When you see a rainbow, what does it remind you of? God's promise, doesn't it? He made a promise that he would never destroy the earth by water again. And so the rainbow, when we see that rainbow, it reminds us of God's covenant. It is a reminder 
of the great faithfulness of our God, isn't it? He's never broken that covenant. He's never allowed the world to be destroyed by flood again as he did back in Noah's day. Isn't it wonderful to know that God is faithful? To know that he is dependable, that he is trustworthy, that he never goes back on his promises. It says he's clothed with a cloud and a rainbow is about his head. And then it says, and his face was as it were the sun. That description right there causes me to believe that this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's similar to the description we read of in the opening verses of Revelation chapter 1. It says, his face as the sun. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, and Peter and James and John were there with him, the Bible says that he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured means that all that was on the inside was manifested on the outside. His inward deity that was hidden and cloven by human flesh for one brief moment burst out in blazing fire and Peter and James and John saw the transfigured Lord Jesus Christ there on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, the Bible tells us that he saw a great light shine from heaven. And when Paul described his experience in Acts 26, he said, I saw a light above the brightness of the sun. Who did he see? He saw Jesus. Some of you old timers will remember a song that we used to sing that says, Jesus will outshine them all. And Jesus does outshine them all. His face is brighter than the noonday sun. And when Jesus was born, God put a special star in the sky. And when Jesus died on the cross, God put the sun out for a period of about three hours. Jesus Christ is the one who's brighter than the sun. He's the one who lights up your life. He's the one in heaven who is the light of heaven, and there'll be no need for the sun there, because Jesus is the light of it. And then it says, His feet as pillars of fire. It's picturing there the total authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It pictures His majesty. He comes walking in majesty with pillars of fire. Once He traveled this earth and His glory was veiled, He was a baby and a boy and a carpenter and a traveling preacher. He was insulted. He was ridiculed. He was mocked and scorned. From generation to generation, he watched men persecute his followers and his believers, squander the wealth of this world, and abuse the hospitality of a planet that, brings, that belongs to him alone. But one day he's coming back. And one day when he comes back, he'll rule and reign on this earth, and things will be different then than they are now. And here in this chapter, the indication is that his return is going to be very soon. I'm looking for Jesus to come back any day, any moment. It could, he could come back before this service is over today. And then I want you to notice, not only does he give a description of our Lord Jesus, but then notice that he draws our attention to his claims. He draws our attention to the claims of the Lord Jesus. In verse number 2 it says, And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set, in his, he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. When the Lord Jesus sets his right foot on the sea and the right foot on the left foot on the earth, it is a picture of the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's a figurative language that's given here for us. 
it says that he is taking back possession of what he already owns. Remember that possession was taken by the devil back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel got ready to go into the promised land, the Lord said to them, He said, Everywhere you put the sole of your feet, I will give you as possession. In other words, as they entered into that promised land, He said, Wherever you walk on it, wherever you step your feet on it, I'm going to give that to you. Well, here's the Lord putting His foot on the sea and on the land, and He says, That's mine. I'm taking back possession of it. Sometimes today when people are going to buy a piece of property, they'll walk over that property. I remember when we bought this property here, I walked all around this property. In fact, I even walked down at that time, we didn't own the house next door, I walked down the property there and looked over that and said, Lord, I'd like for you to give us that piece of property too. And he did a little bit later on. But you walk over a piece of property, you kind of get the idea that, that it's going to be yours. You're going to take possession of it. You're going to have dominion over it. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to say, I'm taking dominion over this earth, over the world, the rivers and the seas and the shore. He is the one who owns it, and He's taking dominion over it. The Gentile nations in Israel, the civilized world and the restless tribes, they all belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He comes back and claims what is rightfully His. One of, the, one of these days that will take place. I'm looking for it in my lifetime. I'm looking, as I said often, for the upper taker, not the undertaker. And I hope you are too. And he could come back. We're not looking for signs. We're listening for the sounds, the sound of the trumpet to sound and us to be called away. And then he draws attention to his cry. He draws attention to his cry. Look at verse number 3. And cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. He draws attention to his cry. There are few sounds to compare with the roar of an angry lion. I don't know if you've ever been at the zoo and heard one of those lions roar. Nothing can quite compare to that, especially if it's unexpected. The lion's roar will bring a chill to the strongest heart. When, when the lion is chasing the animals, oftentimes the roar literally petrifies the animals and they can't run. The Lord Jesus Christ is called the, my, the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah. And he sounds forth his cry. And he's going to take possession of this world. One day his voice will sound. One day he will take possession of the world. The devil may think that he's running things now. Don't ever forget, as we said last week, the devil's on a leash. Amen? He can only go as far as God will let him go. Kind of like these electric fences that you have for your dogs in the yard. And the dog goes flying down there when you're... I remember when I used to live out in, in uh, Walton... I would walk up the street, it was a cul-de-sac, and I can be on, there was this one house, had this dog, and he'd come flying out there in the morning when I was walking, just barking and, and carrying on, and he'd come flying down, all of a sudden it's like, and he stopped, he wouldn't go any farther. And that's the way the devil is. He can only go as far as God allows him. Now granted, as with Job, sometimes God removes that hedge and lets him go farther. And God sometimes allows him to attack us and to do things, but God always has a purpose and a plan for that and a reason for it. 
But nothing the devil ever can do to us can be done without it passing through him and getting permission from him. God allows it. The devil is a created being. God is a supreme being. He is far above. That's why the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? We don't have to fear the devil. We respect him. And we understand that he's powerful. And I get a little bit disturbed with people who sometimes use slang things about the devil. I hear people call him old smutty face, and I hear them use things like that. And and that's fine if they want to do it, but in, in, in the New Testament, the Bible says that Michael the archangel even, he asked for the Lord's help and said, the Lord, you rebuke the devil. You hear a lot of people talking about, rebuke the devil and do this and that. And I think we can rebuke the devil, but you always do it in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have the power, but he doesn't have any power anywhere near to our great God. He is the almighty God, the all-powerful God. You know, we, we sang the song, crown him Lord of all. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. He is, he is king of kings over all the rulers of this world, and none of them, all of, you think of all the power and the money and the might of the rulers of this world, and we can't really imagine that. I mean, even in our country, you, you and I don't understand what it's like to live as the president and to have everything done for you and given for you and have all of the wealth that goes along with that. And in many of these other countries, all the wealth and and it's kind of amazing how these politicians go into office and, and they're thousandaires and they come out and they're multimillionaires and sometimes billionaires and all of the money thing that goes, but here's what I want to say. All of that power and all of the money that the most powerful person in the world has isn't a drop in the bucket compared to the might and power of our God. You think about a God who created this universe. You think about a God who's just just flung the stars into space. A God who just spoke and there was the sun and the moon. A God who who when the earth was covered with water just spoke and the waters parted and you had land. And God is the only one that can speak, can, can create something out of nothing. He's a powerful God. We all have to have something to make something with. If you're going to make a piece of furniture, you've got to have some wood to make it with, don't you? And some metal. If you're going to build a building or build some walls, Brother Ed, downstairs, you've got to have some material to work with, right? Wouldn't you like to be able to just speak those walls out of nothing? <laughs> Save a lot of time and work, wouldn't it? We can't do that, but we have a God. I want you to understand that God is far greater than we are, but He's also far greater and more powerful than the devil is. And when you stay in tune and in touch with your God, your God will take care of the devil. Amen? And you can rebuke him, but do it in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil may think he's running things right now, but one of these days when the Lord comes back, he's going to set up his kingdom and he'll rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, and Jesus is going to be in charge then here on this earth. So we turn our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we see him And when we get our eyes fixed on Jesus, we take giant steps towards the goal that God has in our life to live for Him and to serve Him and to please Him. When you get in trouble, when the problems come, when the trials come, when the tests come, what do we do? Turn our eyes 
on Jesus and look to him. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for John who helps us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. We'll see in the next part of the chapter that then he turns his eyes upon John, but first we must see Jesus. And would you help us today, this morning, just to get a little glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see the rainbow. May we see the cloud of glory. May we see His power and His might. And as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we'll see those trumpets and the various vials that are poured out and see the power of Almighty God as He pours out His wrath on men who reject Him and despise Him and and hate Him. Would you help us today to fix our eyes on you So we'll never have to experience the wrath and the judgment, not only here on this earth during the tribulation period, but eternity in a place called hell forever and ever. Thank you for a loving God who provided a wonderful way that we'd never have to, any of us would ever have to go to hell. We can go to heaven through faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. May every person here today put their faith and trust in you. 